Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are continuing our sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And we are looking at the Fourth Commandment again. We'll be in this at least one more week. But the first four commandments reflect our instruction to love God. Commandments 5 through 10 reflect our instruction to love our neighbor. Um, so there's, there's only one true God, and, and he is worthy to be worshipped in the way that he has revealed. And we're to honor him in thought, word, and deed. And this final commandment in the first section that deals with that love for God is oftentimes met with the greatest amount of resistance. We mentioned that last week, our, our tendency to want to avoid this one or explain it away in, in, a, in different terms, right? different than we would the other commandments. We want to treat this one uniquely. But it really follows in line with the first three. Jonathan Edwards put it like this. He said, it is the very design of the command to fix the time of worship. The first command fixes the object, the second, the means, the third, the manner, and the fourth, the time. But disagreements over the topic are inevitable. Uh, they should not disrupt our fellowship. However, it would be good for you to understand that much of the discussion surrounding the Christian Sabbath are secondary matters. We can take a firm stance on this commandment and still allow room for brothers and sisters to disagree on matters of conscience. There's so much around this topic of the fourth commandment that, it, that has been debated throughout church history. Right? In fact, there have been significant differences among Reformed Christians throughout history. The Second Helvetic Confession, the, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Westminster Catechisms all have different interpretations regarding the Sabbath. You can line them up alongside one another. There's, there's a lot of parallel thought among them, but there's also some significant differences in how it's to be honored, how it's to be carried out, the Westminster Confession is the most detailed, and therefore, it's the most prone to attack, right? to, to people disagreeing with it or taking exception to it. In fact, in our denomination in the PCA, um, probably nine out of ten ministers take exception to some teaching about this commandment in the catechisms. So it is not unique to take exception to how we understand the fourth commandment. Right? And so we should be a little gracious, right? This is, of all the commandments, we need to recognize the need to be patient and to have grace toward those who don't see it exactly as we do. Right? We can expect a great amount of pushback on this interpretation. And so while, while you might be convinced of what should be taking place on Sunday, and you might be convinced this is the Christian Sabbath, others say, no, the Sabbath has been abrogated. Um, in fact, B.B. Warfield said Jesus was buried, he, he, he died and, and, and buried the Sabbath with himself, and he resurrected on the Lord's Day and, and brought the Lord's Day into operation, right? So there's a lot in, of discontinuity in, in his mind and in other uh, theological, you know, uh, scholars that, that we highly respect. They find a lot more discontinuity between the Sabbath worship in the Old Covenant and the Lord's Day worship of the New. But they all do see some importance placed on the day. I, I don't know of any of the Reformed confessions or catechisms that minimize it as a day of worship. It's a day that's set apart for worship. It's oftentimes what takes place outside of that context, what takes place outside of corporate worship that, that gets the most uh, questions, right? The most pushback. So in saying all of that, I don't want to go swing the pendulum all the way to the other side and, and act like this isn't really that important of a command, because that's what we tend to do. We say, well, it's so controversial, like, like any of us are going to figure this out. Let's just ignore it altogether. 
no, that's generally not advised, right? Um, none of this implies that we can ignore the issue altogether. It's a subject of tremendous importance to God. Sabbath, the word Sabbath is mentioned at least 159, in at least 159 verses, sometimes multiple times in those verses within the Old Testament. So considering this is a, a subject that we often feel free to neglect, Dr. John Gerstner, he would simply read those passages out loud to his students. He'd take a, a class period and just read the 159 verses that deal with the Sabbath so that by the end of class, no student would think this was not an important topic to the Lord. Uh, could you imagine we would spend the rest of this service just doing so and probably go beyond our typical service time. And so I've, I've likened my own study of the Lord's Day to Josiah kind of finding the, the book of the law and then repenting for all of the ways in which he'd broken that law. Uh, followed by this eager reforming of worship. That's what Judah, uh, that's what he did in Judah, Josiah. And you can read about it in Second Kings chapter 22, verse 8, through chapter 23, verse 27. He, he finds the book of the law. He weeps over the ways in which they had, uh, had really neglected obedience to the law. And then he instructs the people in how they were going to reform their ways in order to fall in, uh, in line, or at least in, in accordance with the law. So he tore down the idols and, and he restored the Passover. So what are those kind of idols that we need to tear down related to the Lord's day or related to Sabbath breaking in our day? How might we restore Sabbath keeping? Recognizing there might be some differences in how we do that in each home. How do we ensure that the Sabbath remains a priority Weeks from now, months from now, years after we've spent three sermons talking about it. It's so easy to, to kind of get worked up and excited about changing the way you're going, the patterns of your day. And then the next week go, well, you know, maybe we don't have to do it quite like that. And then a week after that, well, you know, that was all a little bit overkill. Now, let's not be legalistic, you know. I mean, we can just kind of excuse ourselves over time. And, and I think we, we want to be careful not to do that. We want to take this seriously. Last week we talked about, and I want to review this briefly, but we talked about the origin and the observance of the Sabbath. And, and this is why, you know, I think this provides something of the grounding that we need in order to treat the day with the right kind of um, honor. I, we consider from Genesis chapter 2, 1 through 3, how on the seventh day, God rested from his creative work that he had done the previous six days. He rested. He wasn't inactive. It wasn't like he stopped doing anything, but he rested from that creative activity. He had finished that work, and now he was continuing to do a work of preservation of his creation. Right, but that, that's the, the pattern of six days of work and one day of rest. And we could say that that day of rest was meant to, to kind of appreciate creation, to stand back and just enjoy creation. That's something that we don't oftentimes take the time to do. Right? We're so distracted, so busy from week to week, from day to day, that when we come to Sunday, we're still very distracted. And even as we gather for worship, we're distracted. And we're thinking about all the things we need to accomplish with our time. So if the Sabbath is a creation ordinance, if it was something God part at creation, that seventh day, he sanctified it, he made it holy, set it apart at creation, well, then it's a creation ordinance, and it's on par with work and marriage. We should treat it in that same regard, which means it has an ongoing importance for the believer. It's not something that passes away at least not entirely, right? There's, it changes in its ceremonial, um, how, how we ceremonial, ceremonially practice the Lord's Day, but it doesn't just go away. It's not abrogated entirely. And so there, these were, were some of the few instructions given prior to the fall 
So they take on a, a supreme importance. This instruction seems to have been passed on and practiced by the patriarchs. We mentioned how Cain and Abel offered their own sacrifices at the end of the week. That seems to be the, the most likely interpretation of that, um, of that verse to, to say uh, that it's at the end of the week or on the seventh day they offered their sacrifices. This would imply that the day already had a component of worship attached to it within the first family, that they were taking that day, setting it apart, and honoring the Lord with their sacrifices. The Sabbath was explicitly mentioned again in Exodus 16, and it reflected, uh, it was reflected in the details of the collection of manna, how the Israelites were encouraged to collect the manna. Remember, on the sixth day, they were to collect double, so that on the seventh day, they wouldn't have to go out and gather anything because there wouldn't be manna. God would not provide manna on that day. In fact, he would enforce them to rest. And yet some still decide to go out and look for it. And so they are rebuked. And, and the Lord says specifically, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my laws? And I mentioned that that phrasing would, would seem odd if this was the first time they'd ever heard of the Sabbath and it was the first time they had ever broken the Sabbath. How long will you refuse indicates a period of, of repeated disobedience. And you can read that in Exodus 16, verse 28. So the implication of the language is that this was a repeated failure among the patriarchs and among the Israelites who were wandering in the wilderness. And then we finally considered from Exodus 20, the four general principles that, that you learn of this fourth commandment. And I want to reiterate them again, remind you of those, and, and hopefully encourage you to just recognize the simplicity of this command. It's not as complicated as we make it out to be. Um, So the, the, there's two aspects that are positive and two negative principles in the Sabbath commandment from chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. You read one that it's, to, uh, it's a day to remember. Remember the Sabbath day. That not only imp implies a prior knowledge, it Im implies that we're not to forget it, that we're also to continue to observe it. It's not just an intellectual uh, reminder of what the day is. Uh, but that we're actually, it implies observing it. And when you look at Deuteronomy 5 and, and the reiterating of, of this law, it uses that language. That it's a day to observe and to um, honor the Lord. So we celebrate on that, on that day. So remember the Sabbath day implies all of that. Also keep it holy. So it's set apart. It's not common. When the Lord declares something to be holy, who are we to make it common? It would it'd be the same thing as profaning his name. In the same way you can profane his name, you can also profane its day. So those are the two positive uh, aspects of the day. There's also two negative. Do not do any work. Again, it's not inactivity. It's, it's a, a, an enjoying and a resting uh, God's blessings that he designed for that day. And then fourthly, do not employ others. So do not do any work and do not employ others. The command has, has universal application for everyone in the land. Even those who were not Israelites were commanded to honor the Sabbath. Uh, and, and when they broke that command, they were held accountable for that. So it's important that we recognize that universal application. How can we pay someone to perform a task that would be sin for us to perform? We, we can't make excuses for ourselves to employ others and say, well, they're, they're already breaking the day. No, if you're enabling them to break the day, then you're also complicit in that sin. So today, I, I want to consider the purpose of the commandment. And since we oftentimes find ourselves focused on all the things we're not supposed to be doing, uh, it, we can easily dismiss the positive purpose. And so, yes, we will still talk about some of the things that we shouldn't do or some of the ways we can understand this passage. We're going we're gonna to actually turn over to Isaiah, um, so you can open there now. Isaiah 58 is what we're going to be looking at primarily today, verses 13 through 14, um, because it, it emphasizes the purpose of the Sabbath day and the positive nature of it. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we are grateful 
that you've given us your word, that you've given us instruction to help us to honor you rightly. And Lord, help us to not neglect that duty to understand, to sit under your word and to be challenged by it. Lord, if we're not willing to listen and to submit to your word, then, then we're not honoring you as Lord. You're not sovereign over our lives, if that's the case. If we're not willing to be corrected, then, then we're the one in charge. We think of ourselves as, as an idol or, or God. And so, Lord, help us, correct us of that thinking. Help us to be willing to, to submit to your word and to change our ways accordingly. Lord, we know that we must depend upon your spirit to do so. And so even as we sit under your, the preaching of your word, Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Soften our hearts that we would respond in obedience and not, not be hearers only, but doers of your word. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, read with me Isaiah chapter 58 verses 13 through 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we'll begin by, by looking at the conditions of keeping the Sabbath. And we find that in verse 13. Before he gets to the, the great positive aspect of this command, in fact, there's some of that as well in verse 13, right in the middle, right where he says, call the Sabbath a delight. That's a, a joyful command. It's a command, but it's a joyful one, right? It's one that we delight to obey. It's, it's attached with many blessings. So although Isaiah's ministry occurred before the Babylonian exile, uh, his prophetic message actually paints a narrative of life in Israel before, or for the Israelites, before, during, and after exile. And he's, he's prophetically pointing forward to a time in this passage where they'd already returned from Babylonian exile. And so the, the, the Sabbath was just as important after exile as it was before, um, as it was during, in fact. This is consistent with what we learned from Ezekiel and Nehemiah. And we could look at many passages. I had to really pare it down to just a few so that we could consider a, a few ways in which all of the Old Testament is, is speaking about the importance of the Sabbath. So you have in, in um, Ezekiel, one of the primary reasons Israel was sent into exile was due to their idolatry and their repeated Sabbath breaking. Uh, one of Ezekiel's most powerful visions was of the glory of the Lord departing from the Holy of Holies uh, that, that, and then past the threshold and the cherubim outside of the temple and eventually outside of the city altogether. You read about that in Ezekiel chapter 10. So the Lord departed because of their repeated rebellion against him. And that rebellion was described in terms of how they profaned the day. It uses that very language in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12 and 13, of them profaning the day that he had set apart for them, that he had sanctified. And then in Nehemiah, it's recorded much later, even after several waves had returned to Jerusalem. This is like the, after the third wave now in Nehemiah, in 445 B.C., of returning to Jerusalem. And although many had returned, the city itself still remained in, in disrepair. The, the walls were broken down so that Nehemiah goes and sees and, and, and gets permission right, to, to rebuild. He, along with Ezra, lead the people in rebuilding the wall and reestablishing everything according to the law of God. And as, as Ezra is expounding upon the book of the law, there's this deep sense of a moral and a spiritual crisis 
that exist, even, even after they've returned from exile, they're back in the land. It's almost like they're, they're excited, right, to, to, to return to the blessings that are being restored, and yet they realize they, they have still so far to go. They're still living in rebellion against their maker, and they're neglecting God's word. Specifically, they mention in, in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 14, their, their need to obey the Sabbath commandment. And so they recommit as a people to honor the Sabbath day by not buying when foreigners come with their goods. They commit this in chapter 10. So the very next chapter, verses 28 through 31. And yet their promises are quickly forgotten. It's just a few chapters later in Nehemiah 13 where people break the Sabbath. They begin working they're selling in verse 15. Some are buying in verse 16 and 20. And so Nehemiah's response to them was to shut the gates in order to prevent commerce altogether. Not just for, for Israel, but for the Gentile merchants who were coming in to, to sell and to buy on the Sabbath. He shuts the gates, so he bars them. And he, even, even as many of them uh, just made tents kind of right outside the gate so that they would be ready as soon as the gates opened again. He rebukes them for doing that. Says, says no, this is a day of rest and we, 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 want, we don't want anyone anticipating so quickly to get back to buying and selling, to get back to the, what they can do the other six days. Right, the fourth commandment was applicable to Gentile merchants. That's why I say it's a universal, it was a universal command, not just for Israel. So Israel lays out the, the conditions, or sorry, Isaiah lays out the conditions of Sabbath observance in negative and positive terms. Back to Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 58, verse 13. He lays out conditions of Sabbath observance, again, in that negative and positive way. First of all, he says, turning away from your pleasure. Now, some of you have a footnote. If you're reading along on the ESV, you have a footnote there at pleasure that says business. So if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your business on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and your holy days of the Lord are honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure, again, pleasure could be replaced with business. There's, there's some ambiguity there. Now, it's, I, I tend to think it's, it's more than just work here. But many have argued that it is related, even R.C. Sproul being one of the more prominent figures that you would respect. And he takes the view that this is primarily talking about doing your own work, right? Continuing on as if it were just like the other six days. Another day for you to do your own work. And you might say you could, you could, you could put it in the phrase of like doing as you please, just going about as you please. It's not so much entertaining yourself as pleasure would imply, right? But it's kind of doing what you want to do that day rather than what God has in instructed. Okay, so doing as you please will profane the holy day. Whether you want to interpret that as, as focused on recreation and entertainment as the confession and uh, the Westminster catechisms imply, it, it talks about uh, recreation being forbidden. Um or whether you just want to say that it's forbidding work. Either way, the idea is that you must be setting it apart. To continue to do as you please is to profane the holy day. Now, in, the, in a positive way, it tells you to honor and revere the day, to call the Sabbath a delight. So how do we honor the day? Well, one, we, we do not do regular work, and, and that's going to be different for all of us. If this is not just a prohibition for those of us who are kind of earning a paycheck, right? So, so don't do anything that, that contributes to earning a paycheck that day. And if you say, well, well, I don't earn a paycheck for my work, and so I'm kind of excused from this command, right? I wouldn't say that. I would say it applies to you no matter what your calling is. If you're, you're primarily a stay-at-home parent, this day should be different than the rest. It shouldn't be a day filled with house projects and chores. If you're a student primarily, 
it should be a day that doesn't look like the other six days. It should be a day that's not filled with homework, and, and you should be rejoicing in that encouragement, right? I don't, I don't know why kids feel the need to do homework on the Lord's Day, right? Like, you should, dis, you should delight that this is a day to set it apart, to set it aside, and to just focus on enjoying God. Um, so, so whatever it is that you do, the other six days, this day is set apart. Don't do regular work. Um, I would say secondly, and this is again where, where some of you will be perfectly fine to ignore my recommendation here, uh, but I would say not to seek to mindlessly amuse yourselves. Uh, that's, that's probably good advice in general, but especially on the Lord's Day, to, to fill the day with TV, with movies, with sports, that's oftentimes what happens, right? We, we go home, we've worshiped the Lord, we've kind of set our Bible on the shelf, and then we just kind of turn on the TV. Well, I think, I like what Joey Piper says. He says, God is, is calling us to turn aside from lesser pleasures. Of course, he's giving away how he reads this verse as well, pleasures. From turning aside from lesser pleasures in order to seek the greater pleasures that he has in store for us in the day. And I don't think anyone can deny that there are greater pleasures in giving ourselves fully to the Lord than giving ourselves to some movie, television show, video game, whatever it is. Again, that doesn't mean you can't play a game with your family. You can't have, show hospitality that day and enjoy fellowship with others. But what is the kind of the central theme of your day? Are you giving it to the Lord? Is the Lord on your hearts and minds? Are you conversing about him? Are you reflecting upon him? So again, this isn't inactivity, but meaningful activity. It includes teaching our children that there's greater enjoyment than entertainment. And that, that might require movement right? and, and doing things when we're tired, parents, to, to help your kids to fill that day thoughtfully. Uh, not just ignoring them and, and kind of filling it with rebukes and telling them what they can't do. You've got to make it something that they enjoy, something that they look forward to, that they're not just counting down the hours for Monday. It's for this Sabbath to be over. I would say you also have some very clear language here that to me means this goes beyond just work. At the very end of verse 13, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly. Now again, that talking idly, some have said, it just means speaking, of kind of taking the day and using it to, you're not actually working, but you're talking about work. Right? So you're thinking about it. You're really still working. You're just not actively receiving a paycheck for the, for the day, for the time you're putting in. I think it goes beyond that, though. I think it has to do with just sort of ignoring the fact that it's the Lord's day and using it for idle chit-chat, for just kind of, talking about anything and everything under the sun and, and, and ignoring that it's a unique day. I, again, we can become really strict about this. And every time someone says something that doesn't directly relate to worship, we would correct them and challenge them on that. I, I don't think we need to become that strict about this. But the idea here, I mean, it's pretty clear from Isaiah, at least under the Old Covenant, that they were, to, they were to watch the kind of conversations they had. They were, to, they were to infuse their conversations with words that would encourage and edify, build one another up in the Lord. You can read the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 61, on, on how they understand that passage or this verse. So, so I, I know that getting into those details can feel so restrictive that it defeats the purpose. <laughs> We've said this is to be a, a day to delight, a day to rejoice. And yet now we're kind of bummed <laughs> because all we're talking about is the things we can't do. And I don't want to lose sight of the blessing that the Lord's Day is meant to be for believers. And I think that's really a, a better way to approach honoring the day is to don't think about all the things you have to remove, 
But think about inserting additional things, additional activities that help you to center the whole day around God. Think about adding components, maybe around a meal, maybe around dinner, that would help your kids to to join you in reflecting on God. Catechize them. You know, you should be doing that throughout the week as well, but maybe take extra time on the Lord's Day with the catechism. Spend more time thinking about the catechism um, and, and its reflections upon the Word of God. Again, it's not catechizing for, for the sake of just memorizing the catechism, but for the sake of understanding how we are to read God's Word. And to, it helps us to, to give a, a system right, to, to read and understand it. Uh, we read Hebrews 4 earlier in the worship service, and we stopped at verse 13. Right, it marks the end of the author's discussion of this Sabbath rest. But what immediately follows the topic of rest is an appeal to consider Christ as our high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. It's almost a, a, an appropriate place to put that. Because we feel our weaknesses when we think about how restless we are. When we think about how, how much we are constantly filled with anxiety, the opposite of rest. We're just... We're, we're fearful. We're worked up. And it's hard for us to rest. And so we, we then transition in Hebrews to considering Christ as our high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. Which means he perfectly honored the Sabbath. Even though others challenged him, and rebuked him for dishonoring the Sabbath, what Jesus did on the Sabbath was perfect obedience to the Sabbath day. And we'll consider that in our next sermon on this um, commandment. But he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And it's only because of the perfect work of our Savior that, that we can fumble our way through life, striving to enter the rest that Hebrews 4.11 speaks of. Strive to enter that rest. It's it's a work to enter the rest. It's a challenge. But it's a work that he alone is able to do perfectly. And And it's a blessing that he alone is able to provide. We don't think about this day just in terms of our own abilities. Once you do that, you've lost it. And we have to come to this command, especially as we do with all of them. But we come to this command recognizing what Christ has done on our behalf. We give him the glory. We give him the honor. And, we, and then we ask for that enabling by his spirit to do likewise, to honor the day, to set it apart. So we might conceive of many profitable things to insert into the Lord's Day, but I, I want to just read one section from P- the PCA's Directory of Worship. Uh, it's not, it's not um, a commandment from our denomination to do these things, but it's just a, a kind of a, a, a few sentences, of, or actually one long sentence, um, with recommendations for how to fill the day. It says, Let the time not used for public worship be spent in prayer, devotional reading, and especially in the study of the scriptures, meditation, catechizing, religious conversation, not idle chit-chat, but religious conversation, singing of psalms, hymns, or spiritual songs, visiting the sick, relieving the poor, teaching the ignorant, and that word, it just means unlearned, those who don't know. It's not, it's, it's, it, they're not being uh, rude there. <laughs> so teaching the unlearned, a holy resting, and in performing such like duties with piety, charity, and mercy. Those are a, a number of things you can fill the day with, and I would encourage you to reflect upon that. But why should our day look like that? Well, because there's great joy in honoring the day. That's what you find in verse 14 of Isaiah 58. Then you shall take delight in the Lord, 
and I will, walk, I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So there is the joy of keeping the Sabbath. You have the conditions of keeping the Sabbath in verse 13. Then you have the joy of keeping the Sabbath in verse 14. So let us not forget the blessings attached to this commandment. The, the Puritans used to call the Lord's Day the market day of the soul. The market day of the soul. What does that mean? Well, it's like going to the grocery store when you're hungry. What do you do? Everything around you looks tempting. Everything looks wonderful. You've got to buy it all. So you fill up your cart and you end up buying more than you intended when you got there. That's why you never go shopping hungry. Well, you should be hungry for the Lord's day. You should be hungry to fill your day with all of the blessings that he has in store for you. And it's the most appropriate day of the week for saints to feed their souls upon Christ and his word throughout the day. Again, Joey Piper puts it like this. He says, when we grasp the privileges of the Sabbath as the market day of the soul, it will be your favorite day. Better anticipated than Saturday, more joyful than your birthday, more restful than a vacation. Is that your description of the Lord's Day? Maybe consider these things. Grasp the privileges of the Sabbath as the market day of the soul. You will take delight. It's about joyfully communing with God. Not impatiently longing to be elsewhere. Not waiting outside the gate, right? Right outside the the store for it to open so that we can then enter in, rush in, and start spending our money again. It's taking the day apart, not filled with impatience, not pouting about what we might miss. Our worship can and should be joyful and reverent on this day. And so, yes, there's warnings and there's conviction of sin, even as this sermon itself is filled with conviction. But they shouldn't remove the joy. And so help your children, again, focus on the delight of the day, not constantly scolding them. Um, The second phrase, I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. This implies a a victory over our enemies. You have the same language used in chapter 33, verse 16. It's this idea of, of... Keeping the Sabbath like, is like trusting in God. You're saying, I, I'm not going to trust in, in the money that I could earn this day. I'm trusting that God is going to provide. And I'm trusting that he can, he can bring a greater amount of joy when I set apart earthly joys and focus on him. Uh, lastly, it says, I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. There, that heritage, is, it's implying that covenant blessings that are passed on from generation to generation. That enjoyment of the benefits of our salvation. We have this language in Psalm uh, 105, this, uh, verses 10 and 11. We read, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying... To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. So the Sabbath or, or Lord's Day worship is a celebration. It's, it's like a, a feast. You don't feast alone. You gather together and you enjoy the ble- God's blessings that are poured out upon you. You gather and enjoy them in, in corporate worship and in fellowship. And then throughout the day, reflecting upon those blessings. I think this is an important reminder for us during this time of of chaos and unrest. We ought to be delighted to find a command from God that has so much joy attached to observing it. So much promises of blessing. Sabbath rest actually preserved Israelites from oppressive economic practices. It was, it was greed that drove many to arrive, or, or, or many to ignore the Sabbath. It was greed to, 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 to try to take in and earn more. And so when we forsake our, our own pleasures, 
on the Sabbath, as verse 13 implies, then we find superior pleasure that's satisfied in God in verse 14. If you, if you take that verse and that pleasure, there's this idea of setting aside your own pleasures and then receiving the abundance of pleasures that God has to offer. So keeping Sabbath threats is about entering the joy of communion with God through Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a, a gospel blessing. The, that pleasure is, is found in our communion with God and then it also overflows into our, our relationships with our neighbors. The Sabbath was a, it has a direct relationship to Christ's summary of the two greatest commands, love God, love neighbor. This is like a, a transition uh, command because it begins to enter into the fifth through tenth commandment, which are directly motivated in, in how we relate to our neighbor. But it's beginning to do that here as well. Because the way we observe the Sabbath should impact the way we treat others. Observing this command involves a love that will not just remain internal, but it will extend in sacrificial service to others, which is why we say that the day can be filled with uh, ministries of mercy and ministries of kindness to our neighbors. Ministries of necessity as well. So it's not a day where the police and the, and the firefighters can take off. No, in fact, they, they honor and they serve those days so that we can also enjoy the day and the privilege of, of honoring it. So even with the promise of great blessing, many still bring up a list of objections to keeping the Sabbath. And, and I'll, I'll close with this. Just a, a few comments of, of some of the common objections to keeping the Sabbath day. One is, is that people say, well, isn't the covenant made between God and Israel? He's specifically talking to Israelites, not to the church. Well, how can we say that it applies to other nations if he's talking to Israel? Well, just like we've mentioned before, there are distinctions between the civil, ceremonial, and moral laws. And so when the theocratic state of Israel ended, its judicial and its ceremonial code ceased. But there are moral principles that can be extracted from the civil and ceremonial laws. And then there are just moral commands as well that are continuing, that are perpetual. Westminster Confession of Faith 19.4 speaks of this principle of general equity. So there's some components of, of the civil and ceremonial code that, that continue to be relevant to us. They have a moral application that's based upon that general equity. So moral principles always have that universal application. They remain in place. Examples of this would be the application of the fourth commandment that will differ from Jewish ceremonial custom where, where they were required to keep dairy and meat separate. Well, we don't have to continue to honor that same ceremonial aspect of, of Sabbath worship, but, but it's... But that tr is true to some degree of, of all the other commandments as well. And they take on a different importance and, and maybe they, they are carried out in different ways under the new covenant. But there's still a connection. Right? There's still some continuity between them. So some have argued as well that the fourth commandment is, is just ceremonial. And therefore, it's been fulfilled much like the sacrificial system. So there's really nothing about the fourth commandment that carries over. They argue that the Sabbath ultimately foreshadowed the spiritual rest and therefore is fulfilled by Christ. But Jonathan Edwards points out that this interpretation would abolish the law rather than fulfill it. And Jesus specifically says he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So it still has relevance, still has an importance for us to consider. So how might we take that into account? Well, I've already mentioned this, but let me summarize it. There are some moral aspects in the fourth commandment. It belongs to the universally applicable Ten Commandments. It would be quite odd for, for God to give Ten Commandments and say, but only nine are going to continue in a moral sense. That one there, the fourth one, you can, you can kind of remove that once Jesus comes and fulfills it. No, it, it, it belongs to this, this list that is complete, 
And you can look at the larger catechism of the Westminster 93 and 98 uh, to understand that. The theological basis as well for the fourth commandment is that it's a creation ordinance. When you go back to creation and you see its relevance, again, it's going to be a perpetual command that has relevance to us today. And it's a continuing sign of the covenant pointing us back to Christ's resurrection and forward to his return. So these these are, are moral realities that give it an ongoing relevance for us today. Some of the ceremonial aspects would be that it was a covenant sign for Israel, which included seventh-day worship. That has been changed to first-day or eighth-day worship. There's a day of recreation, if you will, that the Sabbath has become, the Christian Sabbath, or the Lord's Day has become. Uh, under Israel, under the Old Covenant, there were also special Sabbaths and feast days. Those have, have gone away. All of the Ten Commandments to have civil and ceremonial ramifications also that passed away. Right? So that disobedience to the Sabbath would have led to death. And so someone was gathering sticks, and we'll conclude with that looking a look at that passage but to just gather six on the day in numbers chapter 15 led to a stoning by the people you think man gathering sticks led to death it was clear disobedience and defiance of god's command they were in rebellion to do so so our attitude toward the fourth commandment. Now, uh, in, in saying that, there, there is a change and a transition under the new covenant. If you break the, the Sabbath command, you don't get stoned. You can say, thank you, Lord. Right? The reason why is because it, Christ has, has, has given the church a spiritual oversight, and we now have the authority to, to follow through in spiritual discipline. But there's not a civil law that we have to that we honor in that way now unless you're unless you're a theonomist and you take that, that some different approaches to the ongoing relevance of the civil law but that's not what i that's not how i see it so we'll, we'll come back to that very briefly but our attitude toward the fourth commandment may reveal the state of our hearts how do you how do you fight formalism in worship right if this is a day to to be filled with joy and delight then you should be preparing your heart for worship and anticipating that delight in singing and in praying and sitting under the preaching and in celebrating the Lord's Supper, enjoying the fellowship with the saints. Uh, what, do you, what do you say to the person or the, the child for whom the Lord's Day is not a delight, for whom it's drudgery? Well, do you discourage them from honoring the day until they can do so cheerfully? No. You help them to, to, to kind of to, to repent and to see the value and the joy of it. And it'd be the same way. If, if you cannot be a, a cheerful giver, should you just not give to the Lord at all? No, you should repent that you're not doing so cheerfully and then honor him with your gift. The conditions of the, uh, the, the condition and the promise are bound together. The blessing that we receive from following through in obedience is, a, is, is always attached. You have this example in, in Psalm 119, verse 35, where we read, Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Obedience and delight, trusting and obeying, they go together. Faith and obedience feed into each other constantly. 1 John chapter 5 verses 2 through 3 says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And, these, and, and his commandments are not burdensome. I know you're saying, oh, but it is so burdensome. <laughs> All of these things that we've been talking about, they're so challenging. Well, not when you learn to delight and recognize the blessings attached to obedience. All right, so under the Old Covenant, the Sabbath breaker was to be executed according to Numbers 15, and it sounds harsh, 
But one commentator says this, now the lawbreaker, instead of being stoned to death outside the camp, may come to Jesus, who suffered there for us. The reason why you don't have to be killed for your disobedience is because Jesus was killed in your place. Because he took your guilt upon himself. And so he could say, as he did in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Jesus alone could say that. That we can go to him and, re- and find rest. Are you burdened? Are you heavy laden? Turn to Christ and find rest for your souls. Have you come to Jesus? Only Jesus can satisfy the rest that you desperately long for right now. And I think that includes all of us, including those who are out rioting. Right? They're longing for a rest that this world cannot provide them. Only in Christ are you set free from all of your burden. Heavenly Father, we... And so let's look to him now for that blessing. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have given us this command to delight in you. To set apart a day, one day in seven, where we can rest, we can set aside our work, we can set aside all of the things that oftentimes fill our minds and our words, our conversation, that fill our actions, and put that aside and do something different. A day that is when we gather together with saints to worship you. We thank you that you've given us entrance into this kingdom that even though we, we have not honored this day and we can't do so perfectly and we will fail today, we thank you that you sent your son Lord, to, to take our rebellion upon himself to take our sin and our shame and our guilt so that we in exchange by faith might receive his righteousness his perfect obedience lord we're so grateful for the work of christ and we want to honor him this day we want to come before him and 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 give him praise and receive the blessing that is, that is promised to those who do so, to those who, who honor him in that way. So Lord, help us to continue to worship you now in spirit and in truth. Help us to continue to have our hearts in the right place as we, as we come to the Lord's table. And maybe especially as we depart, Lord, as we go back to our homes, as we go about the rest of our day, may we recognize that it's the whole day that's been set apart. Not just this morning, but it's a day that belongs to you. So Lord, enable us to worship you now and give our time to you fully. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Man, well, I invite you to stand our hymn of prep or of.